All right. Um, just going to go through a little bit of an introduction. Uh, we are studying the half Torah, but to properly study the half Torah, we should know at least a little bit of the background of the um, Parashat HaShvuah, the portion of scripture uh, coming out of the Torah that would be read each week. This week it's Toledot, starting in Genesis 25, verse 19 through 28, verse 9. So I'm going to just give a brief synopsis. Um, I won't be teaching really much of anything out of Genesis. Uh, we'll be focusing on Malachi. Uh, there are some particularly difficult passages there to analyze and talk about. But just for the synopsis, we have at the beginning of, of this section, Toledot means the generation. So this is the generation of Isaac. So the last couple of weeks were the generations of Abraham. Um, what he did, his calling from God uh, through to his death. And now we're looking at um, Isaac in particular. And Isaac is married to Rebecca. And Rebecca, as was the case with many of the uh, women in scripture, had difficulty conceiving. And uh, there was a prayer that she might have children. And God told her that there would be, in fact, two children um, when she did conceive. And these two children would um, be divided in some fashion. And the one would be stronger than the other, but the older would serve the younger. So you have the story of Esau and Jacob. And um, even though it says that these are the generations of Isaac, Isaac actually doesn't get much um, in the way of scripture. He just gets a brief story here and there. Uh, and even within his own story, uh, much of the narrative focuses around Jacob and Esau. Um, but Isaac does have a uh, promise that comes to him, and this will actually become important later on where the promise that God gave Abraham is passed on to Isaac. And Isaac will, in fact, um, bless the world, even as his father Abraham would. Um, and so you have the continuation of the covenant, which is one of the main themes of Malachi, uh, to some degree, is this covenant between God and Israel. Um, and the problems that are found in it. Um, and in the end, you have a argument or a dispute uh, between Jacob and Esau, where at first Jacob takes the birthright from Esau. Um, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob, and then later on, Jacob deceives his father to receive the blessing. Um, and this is the main uh, synopsis of 
uh, Toledot, Genesis 25, 19 through 28, 9. So now we'll go ahead and read the half Torah, which is Malachi 1, 1 through 2, 7. Malachi 1 through 2, 7. The Oracle of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? To you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that you were one of Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not offer an offering or accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you ignore that, it says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord, what is blemished, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you did not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your off offerings, 
and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I give them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the first thing that you will note is this question outside of this being a um, oracle of, of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, whose uh, name uh, is basically messenger, uh, my messenger, is this interaction between God and the people, um, specifically the people of Israel or Jacob. And God seems to have this back and forth conversation with them. Um, and the first part of it is a statement by God. I have loved you. And the rejoinder is, how? How have you loved us? So I personally understand this question. Love is a very vague term for many people. It's so vague or so broad that if I were to go through and ask on the chat what love is, I would probably get a relatively different response from the majority of the people who are watching or listening. And if I went on the street, those answers would vary even more as you have uh, different people responding from different cultures, from different backgrounds, from different worldviews. And I've had uh, people who have come up to me and said, hey man, I love you. And sometimes my response has been, how? How have you loved me? Uh, most often it is a question that I wonder in my own mind because I don't see it. I don't see that their actions state that they love me. And of course, sometimes love can be very um, just good friends or even acquaintances who know each other and, hey, man, how's it going? Love you. Good work on your stuff, which is actually fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's a very low view of what love is. Other people might look at love and note that in Scripture, the first time that love is used is in relationship to sacrifice. So when God 
called Abraham to make a sacrifice of Isaac. He told him to bring the child, the son that he loved. And this is the first time that love is used in the Bible. So I think it's reasonable to ask, how? How have you loved me? Um, and then God's response is interesting because there are so many different ways that God could declare how he loved Jacob, how he loved Israel. In fact, when you go through the Psalms, you'll have whole books on how the mercy of God endures forever, the um, chesed of God endures forever, whatever it might be. Uh, and other places where it talks about the love of God. And um, you, of course, have this uh, returning theme throughout Scripture that is stated very emphatically uh, in the New Testament. Uh, we love him because he first loved us. And we can see that interaction. We can hear and understand the reasons why God loved us, the actions that he took to show us love, the sacrifice that he showed to show us his love. But instead, we get this very difficult very difficult passage. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. How have you loved us? God's response, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. Now I'm not going to be able to declare exactly what this means. Um, I'll give some different viewpoints on it, but much greater minds than mine, geniuses, studied pe people throughout history, uh, people who are more righteous and holy uh, than I have looked at this and disagreed with each other. And so I'm not going to pretend that I can understand all of it. But the concept of God loving Jacob this is relatively easy to understand. Um, you'll have many different illustrations of it throughout scripture. Um, but Esau have I hated has a much more difficult connotation. There are several different options that people put out there. Some people will talk about how God elects certain people. He predestined certain people uh, like Jacob um, and maybe Esau. There are other opinions where it's a little bit more conditional and based off of the foreknowledge of God, where God looks at history. He knows everything. He has full knowledge of the world and he will see what happens, what Esau does, what Jacob does, Esau is going to despise his birthright. Um, the people of, of Esau, the descendants of Esau, won't accept or 
or uh, be hospitable to Israel when they leave Egypt, all of these different things, right? And so there's this concept of kind of a conditional election where God elects someone, but it's based off of his foreknowledge. And then there's a, another concept which is a little bit more based off of um, not just the person, Jacob, and the person, Esau, but the people who come after them, their nations, the nation of Edom and the nation of Israel. And that God, um, and again, similar to the previous two options where it's, you know, this concept of predestination or election or this concept of God's foreknowledge, it can be used, either one of those can be incorporated into this kind of um, national election. Uh, depending on your, your viewpoint, um, but it's looking at the long-term effect of how Israel will live, how Edom will live, um, etc. And finally, uh, there's this, the concept that it is more of a literary device um, where God is making a very strong statement in order to... Um, elevate the argument that he's going to make. Um, so among these four, four different options, and I'm sure there's like a dozen other options out there as well, because uh, that's what we do. Uh, we take our thoughts, we read scripture, we delve into it, and we try and find all of the different details. And in doing so, sometimes we disagree. But um, just as an example of some of the different ideas, you have um, St. Augustine, who in the City of God, um, book 16, uh, chapter 35, uh, St. Augustine will discuss um, Jacob and Esau. Now he'll focus on Jacob, and he'll focus on the concept that God chose Jacob, even though both of them had original sin in his um, theology viewpoint, and yet neither one had sinned yet in his theological viewpoint. So neither of them were deserving of anything, and both of them were not deserving of the grace of God. And yet, uh, St. Augustine will go on to state that um, God's choice of Jacob wasn't based on Jacob's merit. It wasn't based on Jacob's action, but rather on the divine grace of God. Um, unfortunately, he follows that up with, uh, um, I'll just quote it because it's easier. Um Regarding the situation, the only that saying, the elder shall serve the younger, is understood by our writers, almost without exception, to mean that the elder people, the Jews, shall serve the younger people, the Christians. And truly this might seem to be fulfilled in the Edomian nation, which was born of the elder, who had two names, being called both Esau and Edom, whence the name Edomians. 
because it was afterwards to be overcome by the strength from the younger, that is, by the Israelites, was to become subject to them. Yet, it is more suitable to believe that when it was said, the one people shall overcome the other and the elders shall serve the younger, that prophecy meant some greater thing. And what is that except what is evidently fulfilled in the Jews and Christians? Um, that particular viewpoint of St. Augustine regarding uh, this question, I would personally disagree with. I think his uh, middle statement that it seems to be fulfilled by uh, Esau and Jacob uh, is accurate. It does seem to be fulfilled in that. Um, and that we shouldn't necessarily try to um, replace Esau with the one that we're talking about afterward, Israel, and replace Israel with uh, Christian or Christianity. Um, I think that is not something that I am willing to do without great proof of which uh, he supplies none. Um, so for now, I would say, uh, yes, the one shall be stronger than the other, and the young, the older shall serve the younger, being Esau and Jacob, and perhaps even the Edomians and or the Edomites and Israel. Although even that is a um, continuation of the thought. Just from a personal side, uh, it does say, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. It doesn't actually say which one will be stronger. And I think you could make a reasonable argument that it would actually be Esau that would be stronger, and yet, the elder, nonetheless, will serve the younger. But you could also make the same argument that uh, both apply to the younger, that the younger will be both stronger and the older will serve the younger. But I think both are reasonable. It's vague enough on the first statement. The one, one of the peoples will serve the other, will be stronger than the other people, is what it says. Um but the second statement is very clear, the older shall serve the younger. Um, but anyways, that's St. Augustine, uh, which is largely a view of God's grace called out to Jacob and drew him to himself. Uh, you also have, um, a couple of centuries earlier, you have Irenaeus, uh, who is a second century theologian, in Against Heresies, book four, sorry, I have it in Roman numerals, so I have to translate it in my mind. Book four, chapter 37, uh, Irenaeus talks again about this concept of predestination of individuals. Uh, and in chapter 21, he specifically references Jacob and Esau, but he will argue it from the standpoint of God's foreknowledge, which again will be slightly different than um, Augustine, 
And if you're more of a modern theologian and only know Calvin and um, Arminianism, Calvinism and Arminianism, uh, this would fall slightly more under the Arminian um, thought. So Irenaeus will state that God in his foreknowledge chose Jacob over Esau for a particular purpose. Um, and again, he'll emphasize the divine knowledge of future events uh, that God has and his ability to choose individuals based off of his understanding of their character and their destinies. Um, but uh, you do have, um, again, I mentioned the kind of uh, national identities being a possibility. Um, within that, you you can recognize that Edom did treat Israel poorly. You see it in the Exodus. You see them as they're traveling through the land in Deuteronomy and Numbers. Um, Edom refused for Israel to go through their land. They actually had to go around the Edomite land. Um, and there is also this concept of um, an eternal struggle between Esau and Jacob. Um, this is not necessarily, strictly speaking, um, a purely biblical view. Um, you can argue it from scripture, but you could also argue that it's not, strictly speaking, from scripture. Uh, and I will note that the Bible never groups all of a nation as being Arab, for instance. Uh, there are specific nations that God prophesies against. And you do have the Edomites are definitively one of those nations that God prophesies against. Just like he prophesies against the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Phoenicians, the Assyrians, and yes, definitively Israel and Judah. Right? So he he prophesies against each of these nations. Um, and when God prophesies against them, the vast majority of the time, what he would prefer is for the people to repent and turn to him. And if they do repent, God fully accepts them back. Now, sometimes there are still consequences. Sometimes they might still go into exile or whatever uh, due to their earlier actions that caused God's wrath to come upon them. But there is a hope that the people will repent and turn back to God. Um, so there are prophecies against Edom. Uh, Isaiah has three different major prophecies. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 34, Isaiah 63. Uh, of course, uh, the entire book of Obadiah, all chapter of it, uh, speaks about Edom. Um, but as a reminder, there are also other scriptures, like Deuteronomy 23, verse 7. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. 
right? That would be a good thing. You should treat them like a brother. Uh, and then Daniel 11, verse 41, we will note that in the midst of a bunch of nations that are being destroyed, Edom is specifically spared. So we can't just throw everything out and read one prophecy and skip the other statements altogether. Uh, we should read both of them. So again, I can't answer exactly what this question of Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. But the interesting thing is, that's not actually what Malachi is about. Malachi is about this question or statement, I have loved you. Well, how have you loved us? Right? That's the actual, and this is simply a, a quick, small paragraph that should give an example of how God loved Israel, Jacob. Um, and so maybe if we keep going, we might find out more information and what it might actually mean that Esau has been hated or Jacob has been loved. Uh, so let's not spend, uh, you know, 15 hours on this one verse. Let's go ahead and jump to verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. This is actually a um, pretty strong statement. If you recall, a son honoring his father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments. And in fact, a son who curses his parents uh, is condemned pretty harshly. And so this is the opening of the continuation of the statement, I have loved you. A son honors his father. And a servant his master, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if God isn't receiving honor as a father, that goes through all of this concept of the Ten Commandments. You shall honor your father and your mother, and it will go well with you in the land. And of course, in Deuteronomy, we'll, we will note that if the people do not obey God, it will not go well with them in the land. And of course, if I'm a master, where is my fear? A master is feared by the people, and one of the ways that he is feared is through how they act, how they obey, how they serve. Right? And this is a, um, what is it, Luke mentions uh, in Jesus when he's talking, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me a master and yet not obey? There's a major problem happening here. But again, how does this answer the question of how have you loved us? 
if we go and um, we'll talk about sacrifices here in a moment, because he then turns to the priests and he talks about them offering polluted food, polluted offerings. So let me read a quick verse from Exodus 22, 20. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord shall be devoted to destruction. Pretty uh, strong statement. If you offer a sacrifice to anyone other than the Lord, you'd be devoted to destruction. And yet, we know from various passages, from Jeremiah, it says, um, I was doing that in a different uh, study, actually. Uh, but in Jeremiah, it does state that um, the people were offering to foreign gods. And so perhaps if they were offering to foreign gods, and yet God is still coming to them, still talking to them, still dialoguing with them. That might be an indication that God is showing them love. Because he's giving them another chance, another chance, another chance to come back to him. In Jewish culture, in the Jewish world, there are certain things that you just do not do. One of them would be offering a pig on the altar of God. Desecration. Absolute desecration. Uh, in fact, this is perhaps one of several things that kicked off the Hasmonean Revolt, which resulted in uh, a brief segment in time where the Jewish people were able to defeat the Greeks and have another independent nation. However, Malachi here is saying that the people are, in fact, offering polluted food, polluted offerings. And he's talking about offering blind animals. He's talking about offering animals that are lame or sick. And then verse 11, um, he speaks that uh, every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. So why does he detail that it will be a pure offering? Well, presumably because the opposite of that is an impure offering, which on average would be unclean animals. So pure is the same word that is used to talk about um, like when Noah got on the ark and he'd bring seven of every clean animal or pure animal and two of unclean or impure. And so the people are offering something that is as bad as, say, offering a pig or worse. Um, and that is their action day in and day out. The priests are sitting there 
bringing in animals that should not be offered. And they are offering them to God when you would never do that to a human master. Be too afraid to. You would be afraid, especially in the ancient world. Uh, today, we don't have as much um, corporal punishment <laughs> uh, as they would have uh, when this was written. But if you did something that displeased your earthly master, there was a good chance that you would be beaten. That something terrible would happen to you, and if you displeased them enough, they would have every right to, in fact, even just kill you. Or at least in their minds, they would have every right to be able to do that. And yet, to their own father, which, by the way, father is a common, um, it's, it's not just a New Testament concept. Um, you find the concept of God as a father uh, throughout parts of, of Scripture. Um, starting in Deuteronomy, you have um, God declaring himself as a father who created the people. And often this, this concept of a father in Scripture, right? We think of a father as someone who's loving and kind and great and, um, you know, shows you how to ride your bike, uh, things like that. Um, in Scripture, they're often related to the concept that God created you. He's your father. He made you. Um, and it's a position that you're here and God's position as your father is well above you. Although it's also obviously a relationship, but it is a positional um, statement. I am, if I am your father, why don't you honor me? This um, positional honoring as well as relational honoring. The people profane the table. They despise it. Uh, and they ask even, what are we doing? What are we doing that is so terrible? I can see what I'm reading here. There we go. And the answer is, you bring, in verse uh, 13, you bring what has been taken by violence. One of the most interesting things to me about sacrifice, about offering, is that you cannot offer something that you do not own. And yet, at the same time, we should realize that we don't really own anything. Um, but you're not allowed to offer something of someone else's. This is why Nathan's story to David of you took your neighbor's sheep and offered that as hospitality to your guest was so outrageous to David that somebody who took a sheep and offered it as hospitality was, in David's mind, absolutely deserving of death. 
You can't offer something that isn't yours and be like, hi, you know, I'm really hospitable. I'm really kind. I'm doing what I should be doing. When you're taking it from by force from someone else, or alternatively, if something's going to die anyways, here, take this. Have my lame, have my sick. That is their offering. It says in verse 14, Cursed be the cheat who is a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. In um, Leviticus 27, which I really should have brought up, Leviticus 27, verses 26 through 28, it says, A firstborn of animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord. So again, this concept of you can't offer something that's not yours. Any firstborn animal automatically is already God's. And you can't dedicate it. Uh, no man may dedicate whether ox or lord or sheep. It is the Lord's. It's already his. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back at the valuation. So because it belongs to God, he has to buy it and add a fifth to it. Or if it, if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. But no devoted thing that the man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall be surely be put to death. Again, very strong statements, very strong language. What belongs to the God belongs to God. And you can't change it out. You can't say, well, you know, it's my sheep. It was born in my herd. It's mine. I'll just keep it. That isn't something that you're allowed to do. It, it belongs to God, and therefore it is his. In these things, what do we learn about this statement? I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Well, we're learning a lot about the people that God states he loves. And we're learning a lot that the people he states he loves don't love him back. In fact, they're doing everything they shouldn't be doing. Right? So let's continue. Chapter 2. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Remember, um, one of my favorite songs that we sing probably twice a month or so at Christ Church is the um, ironic blessing. 
uh, and I, I really enjoy it because it's neither a prayer per se, um, it's a statement of truth that you make, that I make, it's the person standing next to me, and the person standing next to me is making in return. God will bless you. God keep you. God make his face shine upon you and give you peace. We're making the statement together. It's, it's kind of a prayer, but it's mostly a statement of truth. And God says here, um, you're giving out blessings, but they'll be turned to curses because you're not honoring my name. And then he talks briefly about the Levites, um, which again, this is a little bit odd because he talks about his covenant with Levi and how Levi was such a great person, which he was an absolutely awful person. Um, he uh, murdered a bunch of people with his brother. Um, but the purpose of the Levites, the purpose of the priests, is to teach, is to declare the instruction of God. And you do have a situation that says, um, and I think this is not just talking about Levi, the one person, but the tribe that God made a covenant with, uh, it says he turned many from iniquity, which is true, although perhaps not as well as they should have, clearly going by this statement about the priests who were part of the tribe of Levi. Uh, they often did not do their duty, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And it's not talking about like enclosing it in and making sure that no one can get to it. Um, it's the same word, uh, Shomer, I assume, uh, that, that God uses of himself, right? Where God guards his people. He, he um, is their protector. He uh, helps them. He cares for them. And, and guarding knowledge should be helping people to learn it, to know it, to not go astray. The Levites were actually put geographically on trade routes, right? So if you wanted to go from Phoenicia to um, Jezreel, right, the uh, where Ahab was, Ahab and Jezebel, the trade route there were multiple Levitical cities on that route from the Phoenicians to uh, the, the summer capital of Israel. And the Levites were presumably supposed to guard knowledge. What does that mean? It means that when the Phoenicians come down with their talk of their gods and Baal and El and all of the things of the North and their philosophies and their worldviews, the Levites on those cities were supposed to say, yeah, no, you can bring your trade goods with you. We can trade back and forth. But your talk of Baal, that's not something that will have happen here. And they'll turn to the people who are encountering 
these foreign gods and say, no, that is not something we believe in, right? The Levites were supposed to guard knowledge. And you have the same thing uh, in the East as well, um, in, in uh, just north of Amman and slightly west of Moab, um, north northwest. And north of Amman, you also have a, a grouping of Levitical cities to guard against the eastern um, gods, like Molech, right? And they were supposed to guard against those. And so, yeah, they're supposed to guard knowledge. And people can seek instruction from their mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. I want to close with a real quick concept. Malachi is quoted by Zechariah in his prayer. Uh, very strongly so. And I think the reason that you'll note why Malachi is so interested in the book of Malachi is that it says, the beginning of chapter 2, and now, O priests, this command is for you. I should be pointing up here. There we go. Uh, this command is for you. And Zechariah was a priest. And so when he hears the word, this command is for you, he paid attention. And so as he's praying, he's going to return to the book of Malachi. He's going to come back to it and realize that God is doing what he said he should do. There would be a messenger. In fact, uh, mostly he quotes from chapter 4, uh, which we can't get to, although it's super important to uh, the message today, unfortunately. Um, but Zechariah listens to God's oracle to Malachi, my messenger. And the priests are supposed to be the messenger of God. And God will send a messenger later on that will speak and warn the people. And if you ask me what it means when God says, I have loved you. Well, how have you loved us? You did this. You did that. You didn't listen to me. You offered offerings that were not yours to offer. You offered offerings that were sick, that were lame. You treated people poorly. You profaned the covenant. Uh, it says in, in, in verse 11, um, well, actually, it says in verse 10, profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he's married the daughter of a foreign god. Remember, if you offer sacrifices to a foreign god, Exodus 22, 20, I think it was, then you are 
devoted to destruction. And yet through all of that, God continues to come back. He continues to talk to the priests, the Levites, the people, the children of Jacob, Israel. He promises that he'll send his messenger. And it might not be a good day because the people are robbing God. They're taking things that should be God's and they're robbing him of it. And then offering things that aren't theirs back to God. And there will be pain and suffering and potential judgment. But the end, the last verse of Malachi, or the last two verses, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Before all of this judgment comes upon you. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of other destruction. So how have you loved us? And why have you loved Jacob and not Esau? Rather than going through all of the theological arguments that are very interesting, I'm sure, uh, and great to stay up uh, late into the night to do. Perhaps it's a simple as God warns Israel of the judgment. And he warns them, and he warns them, and he warns them, and he keeps wanting them to return. And he wants them to turn their hearts back to God. And he's doing this with Israel. And to some degree, I would argue, um, if you live in Edom and you happen to be a descendant of Esau, thank God that in the Toledot, in the readings today, um, God declares that uh, Abraham and Isaac in this particular case will be a blessing to all nations. So there is obviously always this chance that you, if you're Edomite, can repent and turn to God. Um, and you can do so in large part because of the blessing that came through Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Um, but uh, let's stop there and go through some questions, if anybody has any questions.